one of our core values at Ecology is transparency. So we we post all of our financials, all of our board minutes, every receipt, you know, it's all online available. And so we're operating at like a higher level of transparency than any charity and a smaller margin than most charities. And we try and retain that transparency within the team. And and I think having such an impact driven mission and, and, and ethos within the company is, is really enabled us to hire a star talent and there's people that are just desperate to do something really good with their skills and you know everyone at ecology works so hard it does make my life a lot easier uh, you know hiring is really hard but when the people are so great and, and they're so grateful to have such a an impactful job you know it makes it a lot easier All right, everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. I'm your host, Brett Kistler, and today I'm here with Alex Price. Alex is the CTO of Ecology. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Brett. How are you? Yeah, doing very well. So tell me a little bit about Ecology, and then even more importantly, and perhaps more deep, what brought you to the journey that brings you to caring about what you're working on with Ecology? Yeah, so Ecology is a social enterprise based in the UK here. And our main goal is to reduce the world's emissions by 50% by 2040. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty lofty. But we think through the power of collective action, we can, you know, we can fund some incredible climate solutions. And by collective action, I mean involving as many individuals and businesses as possible, contributing small amounts to, to have a, a huge amount of monthly spend, basically. Beautiful. Yeah. How did you end up in this in this business, and what made you think that you could change the world so impactfully and decide to spend your efforts going for this? Yeah, so I've been a, a climate activist for quite a while, mainly doing things with Extinction Rebellion and taking a lot of personal action to reduce my own emissions, my own carbon footprint. And through that and a previous startups I was working on, I was approached by Elliot, who's the CEO of Ecology, and he he knew that I was interested in this stuff. And he said, "Look, I've got this idea. What do you think?" And <laughs> I unfortunately ignored his email for about three months, I think. And uh, eventually, when I got around to reading it, I was like, "Oh crap! This is amazing! I'm going to basically drop everything that I'm doing and start it because it was it was an opportunity that was too good to miss." You know, I I, I really wanted to do something with my technical background, um, my software engineering background, and yeah, this was. The, the pitch that Elliot gave me, you know, was was too good to miss. Nice. And so what, what about that pitch resonated in you? And what in your life has brought you to the point that it would resonate in such a way? Yeah, I think it was just so simple. I, you know, I think the, the best ideas are often the simplest. And he, he just said, you know, for, for the price of a coffee and a croissant a week, I'm sorry, a month, you can offset your emissions and, and plant 140 trees a year. And I just thought, wow, like, I didn't realize climate action was so affordable. And when you look at how many people, especially in the Western world, have that much money you know, to spend on a coffee and a croissant, you know, some people spend that every day, you know, hopefully we can convince them to part with one of those a month and, and really make a massive change. And if, if we can scale to the size of Spotify, we can reach our goals in terms of reducing the carbon emissions of the, of the world by 40%, uh, by 50%. Sorry. So talk to me a little bit about the ways that that, that, that money would be deployed in in reducing carbon emissions because my understanding is that you can't just plant trees or just you know purchase carbon offsets there's 
a complex network of carbon that is being released that needs to be reduced in its release. And then there's a number of solutions for sinking carbon. And of course, we require a mix. And how are you, how is ecology approaching that? Yeah, so right now we are focusing on on verified carbon reductions and, and tree planting that we don't count towards any carbon emissions reductions. We, we call that kind of future planning and offsets and, and carbon reductions are kind of uh, verifiable today. And the plan is to do that until we have so much money that we can start throwing like future tech, you know, carbon sinking in various different ways. So this, there's a multi-phase plan and, and we're just at the beginning of that. So there's many, many avenues to go once we reach like a bigger scale. So what makes it climate for you that this is the thing you're working on personally? Yeah, I think it really encapsulates so many of the things that I see that are kind of broken in the world. So in terms of like emissions of meat, like mass meat production and, you know, plastic pollution and so many of these problems that are so prevalent right now kind of come under the umbrella of climate as well. Like if you solve those problems and you solve climate problems, then kind of doing them all at once and the other part of ecology that's really cool is that we educate our customers on how to reduce their own emissions. So we're not just about like set and forget it. We're also about reducing your own your own footprint. And um, yeah, so much of that can be done through quite simple changes. And I made those changes a long time in my own life. Uh, and then I really think that that's not a sacrifice. That's that's kind of how it becomes became such an obvious kind of path uh, for me. I didn't feel like I was missing meat. I didn't feel like I was missing flying you know there are just like alternatives that you just get totally used to and you don't miss out you know and, and so yeah so tell me a little bit about the journey of so you're, you're the cto of ecology what size is the company now and what size was was it when you joined yeah so for the first six months it was just myself elliot and lucy the three founders and now we're at 31 as of this week i think we doubled in headcount last quarter after our first investment round and yeah we're, we're continuing to scale really rapidly now and it's that's that's partly due to the way we like the, the very early decision to not be a charity we got like a, a very like quite a few emails at the very beginning like oh why why aren't you guys a charity you seem like a charity but we just were like this is too big of a problem to scale like a charity scales like we have to we have to blow up right and we basically become a unicorn but with a with an impact driven model and and so yeah we're we're social enterprise, B Corp pending, but for profit. And that allows us to take on, you know, external investment from VCs and, and, and hyperscale, hopefully. Tell me a little bit more about that, uh, about the financial stain- sustainability of the business. How are you bringing in, you know, this like coffee a day and applying it towards carbon credits and towards, towards planting trees in a way that is profitable, in a way that also feels good to the efficiencies of people who are wanting to be? Yeah paying their money to uh, to help the environment yeah because when it kind of boils down to it our core model is is basically being a middleman right so we we take people's money and we distribute it to the best climate action and we have to do that with a really slim margin which is it's been difficult at times we have a 15 percent markup on the emissions reductions and, and the trees that we plant for people so but the there's a lot in the pipeline i'll, I'll just say that um, we've got many other products and and services that uh, especially in the b2b market we can offer a lot more and, and hopefully have a much more um, sustainable kind of business model for uh, our investors and, and shareholders. So, so tell me a little bit about the journey of growing from 
a team of three co-founders to over 30 people, and especially in such a rapid time with this rapid scale up. How has that been for you? <laughs> it's been a whirlwind. Yeah, it happens really, really quickly. We just had our, our quarterly meetup because uh, we're, we're fully remote team. So we try and meet up at least once a quarter and, you know, having 20 odd people there and after a few drinks, you know, they're coming over and they're saying, oh, you know, you've created such a great company. You must be so proud and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like, I don't even know what happened. You know, I was just like hustling away at the computer and, and suddenly there's all these people that are kind of like are employed by me. And so, yes, yeah, it's, it's just been a real emotional journey. I've, I've just started with uh, my first like proper mentor. He's, you know, going to help, hopefully help me uh, continue to, to be a really valuable CTO as the company scales to 100, 200 members of staff. And, but up until that time, like I've just, I think we've really focused on hiring really great people and, and creating a leadership team that is, is really supportive and transparent and, and honest. And that's one of our core values at Ecology is transparency. So we, we post all of our financials, all of our board minutes, every receipt, you know, it's all online available. And so we're operating at like a higher level of transparency than any charity and a smaller margin than most charities. And, and we, we try and retain that transparency within the team. And, and I think having such an, an impact-driven mission and, and, and ethos within a company has is, is really enabled us to hire A-star talent. Um, and they, th there's people that are just desperate to do something really good with their skills. And, you know, everyone at Ecology works so hard. And, it, you know, it, it does make my life a lot easier. Uh, you know, hiring is really hard. But when the people are so great and, and they're so grateful to have such a, an impactful job, you know, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. You mentioned bringing on a mentor and um, I'm curious what aspects of mentorship you look for and what, what you're looking for in a mentor and also what, in, what personally you want to work on with a mentor. Yeah. I'm kind, I'm quite clear on my weaknesses and, and, and where those lay. So I'm, I'm always focused on improving those bits. So my mentor is, is a, has a technical background, has, has always been a technical lead of, of big companies, but he has a, a, a very a business mindset. He, he always looks at the bottom line, looks at the return on investment, those types of things. And, and those are things that I will typically glaze over because I'll be too focused on the mission. You know, it's like, you know, I, I want to build, build the best product ever. And he is like, well, you know, can we afford to do that? Can you, you know, what's... And so it's, it's good to have that person to bounce back uh, and, and to really ask me the difficult questions. And uh, so, yeah, I think just focusing on my weaknesses, I think that's the... That's the, the kind of key ingredient for sure. What are what are you doing for for interpersonal development for your for your own personal emotional development and also for the purpose you know, for the for that side effect of doing so, which is being able to operate more effectively as a leader and with a team. Yeah. So I've always been interested in in personal growth type topics, and um, I've I've kind of grouped those under the umbrella of intentional living, and there's quite a few things that are kind of come into that you know there's like buddhism and like stoicism and yoga and like there's lots of lots of things that kind of come into that and yeah i'm, I'm just i'm trying to trying to not burn out i think that's the, the, the core like principle because i've seen i've come close to burnout before i've seen my colleagues burn out and i just have to like keep myself from not hustling too much like really reel that in because it's so easy to work over over time and it's really hard to to reclaim that once you burn out so um, that's that's my current focus right now what's a what's a good example of a time that you've burned out and what were some of the signs that you 
having had this experience, could now see earlier and the actions you might have taken to prevent that burnout. Yeah. When we were doing the due diligence for the first round of investment, that was that was tough. Very had to had to take a few days after that was signed because it was it wasn't so much that it was like long days or or like, you know, hustling for a deadline necessarily, but it was that there was so much riding on this. You know, it's like if we truly believe in this mission, then we have to raise this money. And if we don't if we can't pass the due diligence um because of some some technical issue or, you know, something that uh, like data protection or some policy that I've written that isn't good enough, then you know I'm gonna feel <laughs> feel pretty shitty. So that was a lot of like emotional weight, and the there's a few kind of signals that that come up for me. My daily practices go out the window. My sleep goes out the window. Um, I, I have an aura ring, and that, that I used to track my uh, like you know my metrics, and I got that after that that close burnout call because hopefully every day when I check my aura, I can say like, hey, you know. You slept like shit last night, you know, take it easy. And yeah, that is, I kind of recommend that anyone in a leadership role and that, that comes under a lot of stress and a lot of pressure has some kind of biofeedback mechanism just because it's, you get so stuck in the weeds. Um, unless you have something to like call you out, then it's really easy to, to just, yeah, just run yourself into the ground. So as, you, as you've transitioned from, you know, trio, that founding trio, and you're more focused on your own burnout, your own personal uh I don't know, centeredness uh personal resourcing and as you grow to a team of 30 and you have a number of people working under you how have you shifted from tracking your own emotional fluidity and your own you know emotional resources to also now observing and tracking and supporting that that same thing for for those that work for you yeah it's a really interesting question something that we think about a lot in the leadership team um we at college we try and distill things to their kind of core and we try and find the, the single or, or two metrics that kind of tell a whole story um and and for us that's team energy that's the kind of core the core metric that we track for for this sort of thing um if if someone's energy is low then it's usually because they're stressed or there's too much work on their plate for some reason and um and and for us energy means like how enthusiastic are you when you wake up on a monday morning or, or you know at the end of a friday night like are you, are you desperate to to get onto your weekend or are you you know happy to to stick around and uh, you know it's not it's not that we ask people to to push through and, and work extra hours like we really we really push them to not <laughs> work extra hours but um you know people do and that's because their energies are up and and uh, if it's just a really good indicator of, of where someone is. So um, that's that's kind of the core metric that we that we track. Yeah. So a question that I really like to get into often, and I, I think I mentioned this in our sort of like our preparation, but I I'm really curious to hear about something that you've learned about yourself, whether it's through business or whether it's through personal experience or a heartbreak or you know sports or something that just completely opened you up to a new aspect of yourself that having seen change the way that you operate in business or in relationships or everything, if one comes to mind. Mm. Yeah, there's kind of two that come to mind. Um, the first one is around lifestyle, lifestyle design. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of a term that was really trendy like 10 years ago um, and is, is a bit 
uh, you know, a bit sour these days. But um, you know, back in the in the Tim, Tim Ferriss days when it was all about lifestyle design, uh, that was I really bought into that. You know, I really I simplified my entire life and um, you know took my backpack to Bali and lived out there and was was doing the digital nomad thing. And um, and when I came back to Britain, I continued that way of life and um, that that really that low cost living and um really minimalist living allowed me to to take on this opportunity with ecology um because i didn't you know we worked for the first year without paying ourselves and you know i could do that by completely minimal uh, minim- minimizing my uh my outgoings and um so that that's the first kind of the first thing that i'm really grateful for <laughs> that you know that that happened um and the the other main kind of experience i guess was uh reading a book called you were never born by john wheeler and um this book is about non-dualism and and the kind of uh that aspect of, of buddhism and um it was it was like a wake-up call i guess it was like a it was like someone had just shaken me up and be like you know this you like everything is is just consciousness you know you're just you're just everything is appearing in consciousness you're not there's no you there's no um there's nothing going on that isn't just an appearance and and that you know i, I don't think it translates directly to my work but it has given me an outlook and the space to make good calls like all the way along until where i am right now it's given me clarity it's given me space to to make strategic decisions and um it's it's what like most of my daily practice is kind of based around and uh, and yeah, I just I kind of lean on that for sure. Yeah, how does how does that non-dual practice or that non-dual con- contemplation? How has that impacted your view of global issues such as climate and global coordination problems across all of humanity that we all need to address in some sense together or in some interlocking network of special interests that somehow complexly achieves harmony? of some kind mm, mm. i think the the most obvious one for me is that there's nothing special about my existence and my outlook uh i i i view myself as a a viewport to to the you know the universe witnessing itself and that can sound quite vague and and you know hippie if, if you like but that's if you really distill what's going on then you, you realize that everything like we're all the same we're all made of the same stuff we're all we're all ephemeral and you know we're all gonna die we're all you know we all were never born for the last however many years before we were born and those like that that level of of understanding for me has enabled me to just be totally compassionate with with everyone and everything that i see and um you know that that led me down a path of veganism for the for the last five years and you know it's led me to you know the the kind of the aching of the global south and how they're going to be affected by the climate crisis and kind of mass migrations that are inevitable like there's a lot of of a lot of pain that comes from that but a lot of a lot of energy and a lot of drive that comes from those things too um you know and it's it's really what wakes me up in the morning and just you know not not thinking that i'm better than anyone and you know whether that be a, an animal or a rock you know it's it's uh that's kind of at the core of uh of it so something that i that i like to ponder which is 
when when we do when we do work that internal work or you know non-dual contemplation and we reach a place of just recognizing that we are a part of a system and that there's nothing special about us but there's everything special about us and it's both and and we reach this place of compassion and understanding even for those who are acting against what we perceive to be our own interests there's also once we're in that place we become attached to it and then you know as humans anytime we're triggered we jump out of that and then suddenly we drop the compassion we drop you know the the seeing and the vision and i'm curious in for for you what are the ways that what are the triggers and the things that happen for you perhaps a couple of recent examples or distant examples that drop you out of that level of compassion and how does that impact your your life and your work and then how do you recognize it and bring yourself back there yeah i think when i am exposed to like mass negligence i lose hope and that can can sometimes spiral into a bit of an existential crisis where i'm like what what am i doing like why why am i spending so much time on this problem when there's just no hope <laughs> and like le- like losing feeling like we've gone too far and that humans have have uh, have, have fucked it up basically but you know there's no i have to just remember that no single individual is to blame you know we're you know depending on how much you believe in free will you know you can you could just have to lean back in compassion and say you know like this this world leader or this you know dictator hasn't decided to to have these thoughts you know his that's just a, a product of his upbringing and and the the negative system that he was brought up in so that those yeah when i get into a spiral like that i have to just take some time away usually get into nature and uh, i'm very fortunate to to live on a boat on the river avon in here in uh, in bristol and um so i feel quite connected to nature on a daily basis but it's really good to to just get out into a, into a forest and, and just sleep on the ground like that that for me um yeah, really brings me back and yeah doing a lot of journaling just there's something about writing that isn't it uses a different part of the brain i think like i, I don't i don't know the science of journaling but i know that it's different <laughs> Yeah, so th- there's this there's this aspect of climate action that, uh, in a way of seeing it, and you know, in many ways, humans are perhaps the first species that we know of to be self-aware enough to be self-critical of the actions that we that we take in overpopulation. And you know, I could I could go to the the reefs in uh, the Cayman Islands and see you know the lionfish that have overpopulated and they're you know killing all kinds of species. And I look at the lionfish and I'm like, man, there's one way to say that they're fucking up the reefs. And there's another way to say that they're just being lionfish. And in this this entire process that humanity is in is also a natural process of reaching its point of overpopulation and hitting a homeostatic limit that needs to be brought, like come back from. And I'm curious to what extent going into nature brings you into contact with the naturalness of our human process, even in all of its artificial destruction i think it's like like what you said about uh it's the reefs like i it is going into nature is a reminder that i'm just an animal right and um that i'm i am just humaning you know if if that was ever a word and the i can't remember where I, where I heard it but there was i was chatting with a friend yesterday about free will and they were i was saying if a, you know if a, if a bear mauls someone to death like do you blame the bear or do you just say it's doing like doing bear things and like and if you 
see a human mauling someone to death, then you you lock them up and you you tell them they're a bad person. And and we were just discussing like how that's a it's a complicated problem because you have to de-incentivize harm where possible. But but really, like these, we are just all doing these things without really, you know, we think that we're conscious of them, but in reality, like you know, I I don't know what the percentage is, but very close to a hundred percent of our actions are, are non-conscious and 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 just automatic um you know even down to the words that we're that we're saying right now like i they're just coming out without me really thinking about them so um if i i have to be careful to not overthink these problems because i i'm i'm aware that i could easily decide that this isn't a problem and that i should quit <laughs> you know like when I'm, t- I'm talking about climate like climate crisis and and I know somewhere deep down that this is a this is a worthwhile pursuit of my time and it, it's better than me being in fintech or you know apple like apple apps you know and like it, it this has got to be the best the best use of my time in, you know in the startup world and if there is like unwritten plans for ecology to kind of not pivot but grow into other uh, areas of crisis so like ocean pollution for example that isn't covered by anything we do right now but if you know say in 10 years you know we scale to a place where we can just pour money into the climate issue and and we fix that then we can start pouring that money into into the next problem and you know hopefully we can solve all the problems that money can solve (laughs) that way Uh, there's a lot of problems that money can't solve but i've kind of like tangent tangented off with your question but uh yeah hopefully that made sense (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that brings me to something else that's interesting to me, which is, you know, I, I think something that you were that you were pointing to there and with the bear example is that it's important to just recognize that sometimes processes are processes. There's a bear, if he attacks you, he's being a bear. And, you know, maybe maybe we feel a little bit more helplessness about that because we don't have the tools of communicating with a bear that say, hey, could you please not do that? <laughs> You'd have other tools like separation, distance, fences, bear spray, but that's sort of a digression. But I think that's curious to me is that you made this distinction between the problems money can solve and the problems money can't solve. And often money thrown at problems to solve them when money can't solve them starts to like create that muddy cycle of things being non-linearly worse. And that's just a that's just a, a core aspect of the human condition or the condition of life, which is, you know, the lionfish, the bear and our climate crisis all coming from that place. And so I'm curious how you meditate that question and find a deeper and finer distinction between the things that money can solve and the things that something else needs to solve and how you can be interacting with both of those things and affecting both of them through your company. Yeah, from a leadership and like founder role, position we made a really early decision to to lean on the experts and the, and the scientists you know we we we're ideas people we're product people and we are confident in our skill set in building an incredible product that like incentivizes climate action and rewards people for for giving money but we are well aware that we're not climate experts we're not we're not experts in in other areas so we have a a group of we call them the climate committee um I'm not sure how many people there are now. It's it's growing quite quickly, but they are people that we pay for for their time, and they've been sourced from around the world, and they have different sets of expertise. But we go to them 
with every you know every question every project that we support goes through them and is verified by them so it's uh you know if if we were to tangent into a, a different area then we would create a new climate com- a, a new committee you know for for that topic and um and just trust that the kind of group think does the right thing how do you how do you select those committees I, my kind of my my experience with like expert panels is that there can be a lot of different perspectives that are integrated there and then how are you also integrating the perspectives of the people who aren't thinking about these problems but still have a have a stake or have a are are impacted like what's the way that you consolidate as many perspectives as you can into into a panel of experts yeah it's a it's a great question um, i have to ask sam <laughs> he's our climate coordinator um cuz yeah he we put out a big you know call for for people to apply for the climate committee and we do kind of various intakes so we like you know we started off with a small group and then we opened it up to some more and so sam interviews each of them and and i presume that he goes through a process of of making sure that we we have people from diverse set of backgrounds and a diverse set of scientific knowledge but i don't know the specifics of that so no i think if we don't do don't do that then like xr uh, extinction rebellion do a really good model where they they make sure that they have representatives from every single group and they don't have to be experts they just have to have an opinion and you know i think that would be a great model to to grow into if if possible right so we're getting kind of close to our time here and so to to wrap this up what does ecology look like in 5 years if it exceeds all of your expectations and what does your role look like in in both ecology and in the the climate space yeah if we can if we can hyperscale like we want to then you know basically everyone in the west at least that can afford to contribute some money per month to these issues will be doing it through our platform the platform will be very rewarding and social in many ways and and that pool of money can can be distributed you know to the best places and and rather like it, we're going to probably quite quickly run out of verifiable emissions reductions you know there's there's massive companies that are buying these certificates and and retiring them to you know, to meet their emissions goals and so we're going to have to start looking into running our own projects which is really exciting we're also going to have to start funding breakthrough climate technology that uh you know it doesn't it's not going to have the same numbers and the same verified standards that we currently have but it is going to you know be able to fund a lot of research in in really exciting areas so that's where we want to get to and um and hopefully have some you know have some real breakthroughs beautiful well i'm cheering you on alex and thank you for joining us today thank you so much mm-hmm.